We are going to be reading today Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, on the road to Emmaus. Now, now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you, the are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief of priests and our rulers handed him over to, to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But he had hoped that he was the only one. he had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Thank you so much. And what is more, it is the third day. Are we going to keep, should I, should I hold it? Can I carry it? And what is more, <laughs> and what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of them, then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were were not our hearts burning within us when he was talking with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Bow your heads, guys. God, we are gathered here as feeble people, as people who are in need of you, people who desire to feel your presence, God, people who need to be reminded sometimes of your presence with us. God, we are people that get so wrapped up in all that we are facing, all that we are failing at, it may seem like, or all that we're succeeding at that we forget to see you. We forget to see how you are sovereign, how you are Lord, how you are Savior. God, I pray that you would turn our hearts to you today as we, as we read scripture that you would be with my words, that you would, that your spirit would be in what I say, not because of anything I've done, but because you have descended into this place, Lord, and that you are heralding your truth. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. 
All right, open your Bibles to Luke 24, 13 through 35, if you have not already. We'll be tracking pretty closely through this today. And we're going to, we got this week and the week after are going to be um, focused still on the series that we're wrapping up called The Holy Spirit and Us, really trying to understand how to read scripture so that we see the Holy Spirit as we're reading. Not everywhere in scripture is the Holy Spirit spelled out plainly. It's not, and then the Spirit descends. You know, there are times where in God's grace, he has, he, the authors have explained that. But so many times we're discerning, and it's teaching us how to discern as we live today in our world how the Spirit is with us in everything we're doing every day. If there's one thing that's true but so hard to see, it's that in the mundane, come on in you guys, in the mundane, God is with us. He's not just with us in the significant life events, in the wonderful things we do. He's not just with us because we're so great. He's with us doing dishes. He's with us changing diapers. He's with us studying for tests. He's with us. He's with us in those things, you guys. And that is what is so beautiful when we read the scripture. We, we tend to say, well, these are great men, and these are powerful events, and these are so significant of stories. I can't even bear to live up to these things. And here we are in Luke 24 with two not even significant disciples. I mean, who know, of, of the 12, right? Is Cleopas in the 12? Cleopas, anybody? We don't even know. That's not a name we even recognize. Right? We, we don't know who that person is. This is a relatively insignificant person in the story. And yet it's a deeply significant story. Right? So we begin, we begin the story um, looking in these first few verses as two disciples are on the road together. And they're not just on the road together. They're commiserating with each other on the road together. I mean, how many of us in our week, we have a person that we commiserate on the road together with a trusted person that we commiserate with? And something has happened to them that has left them at the end of one road. And I was thinking when I was young, I was thinking of a story. Uh, How many of you guys did summer camp when you were young? Anybody did summer camp? Uh, Any any kind of summer camp? So I did a camp called Camp Myvedon. It was like a six-hour drive. And we had to drive into these gravel roads, up to this lake, right? And this was my very first year doing camp. So I had sort of these romantic notions of what camp was. I had older brothers, so I'd heard how great camp was. And we get into there, and my friends at school had been planning to go to camp this summer. So I'm ready, I'm going up the road, and I'm ready to meet all of my friends, stay in a cabin with them. It's gonna be just like I imagined. And I get there, and we're in the sign-up area, and my friends, are getting their bags and they're leaving as their parents are coming to get them. And I go, what on earth is going on? Like, and I had that feeling of like, they're just, like I'm not the cool kid, right? Like there's the crowd and they're leaving and here I am to camp. How did this happen? How did my parents not plan this out? How did I think I was going the same week they were going? And then I was just like, I wanna leave. Like, I don't wanna be here. This camp is gonna be horrible. It's gonna be the worst summer camp of my life, right? Like, it was like all of my expectations had hit this moment, and it hadn't delivered, and I just wanted out. And it was a miserable week of camp, you guys. I can't believe I went back the next year. Like, I must have just just said, 
Lord, make this better. Like, my friends must have convinced me, no, we're going to get it right this time. Because they were all happy. They were all together. And I was alone. And I had to meet new people. And I had to do all these things. And objectively, it could have been a fun summer camp. But I made it miserable. Because I had expected it to be a certain way. Right? These, these disciples are in this space as they're walking down this road together. They're ta- they, this is Easter Sunday. And here's two miserable disciples. Easter Sunday with two miserable disciples. Because the full story had not unveiled itself yet. When we celebrate Easter, we, we wake up in the morning ready. He's risen. He's risen. And he like that. That's our Easter narrative from the moment of the morning. But the Easter day did not play out that way. It was not the moment of the morning everything made sense and God is glorious and he has risen and we have a savior. It was confusion, an empty tomb, a walk back from Passover. I thought he was the one. What's happening in my life? Where am I even heading next? Am I going to have the most miserable week at camp, right, for me, for little me, you know, like, or am, for adult me, am I going down the wrong path in my life? right? Everything I had planned, everything I had thought would be my Messiah is not my Messiah. Now what? That's what these people are thinking. That's what Cleopas and his friend are thinking. Now, some some believe that this may have been Cleopas and, and his wife. We don't know. The other disciples unnamed. And in some ways, that gives us the ability to, to sort of step into the shoes of the unnamed disciple, Right? To be with them, journeying on the road together, because we are all on the road. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this experience that they're facing the death of their wish dream. And I thought that's so powerful, right? That we have a fantasy view of what our life's going to look like. And we do our best to chart our way through it, right? And to build it in such a way so that we can get to the end that we've either been told is good for us, that we believe deeply, maybe even from scripture, that God wants for us, that people have prophesied into us, that people have told and coached and trained us for career paths. And we get down a certain point in our lives and there is a radical explosion of what Bonhoeffer calls the wish dream, right? Some of us may resonate really well with this. And here's two people, and what happens when that wish dream explodes on them? They are mulling it over again and again and again to each other. Can't you imagine them walking down this road together going, like somebody stole him from the tomb. He must not have been God. He must not have been our Lord and Savior because he was just crucified on Friday night. Right? He's dead. It's over. You know, this is confusing. What is going on? And they mull it over, over, and over. You know, and you're on the hundredth time. I had a friend come over the other day, and his life had just had a total career meltdown. Right? Everything he had worked for. And he just realized, there's not even a market for me. I've worked all of my time on this, and there's just not a market for me. Right? And he sat down and he relayed the story to me. And he's forgotten how many times he's already told me. So he relayed it to me again. And he's not telling me anymore. He's just sifting through it again and again, trying to figure out what to make out of all of it. Hoping, hoping that I will have some insight that when he says it for the 101st time, it will suddenly make sense. But knowing that he will probably be disappointed. 
That's, that's where we're at in this story. We're at the, the, in some ways you would think of Friday night, the crucifixion as the ultimate low point, right? But now we're at the sustained low point. What's worse than the low point? The sustained low point, right? Where you're just not able to get out. Zach and Alex and I were just talking about this, how sometimes you just feel like you're getting kicked when you're down, and then you're like, I give up, and you're just still getting kicked while you're down, right? That's what's happening here. And then something changes. They're approached on the road, and they're brought out of their commiseration because journeying on the road together with them is another, is a stranger who comes up to them and begins to walk with them. We know that it's Jesus because it says in verse 15, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they have no idea. Verse 16, they were kept from recognizing him. So for some reason in the story, supernatural in the Eastern narrative, this happens in a few places, right? In, in the morning when Mary goes to the tomb, the tomb is empty and Jesus comes to her, but she sees him as the gardener, right? The spirit is working in mysterious ways on Easter. Maybe, maybe to test them. Maybe to prepare them for the fact that while Jesus has risen, he will no longer be present. And so they have these liminal experiences like we've talked about, these brief experiences where Jesus is there and then gone again. And so Jesus comes as the stranger. And a story plays out here. And I, and I want to walk us through three pieces of this story, and I want to frame it this way. In the first, Jesus is the fellow traveler. So we need to see as we walk through this story, as we walk through our lives, that Jesus is walking with us as a fellow traveler. And it's actually a beautiful grace, because even though Jesus has every right to condemn Cleopas and the other disciple for their misery... He does not. He joins and he talks with them and he questions and he draws out of them an understanding of where they are at to prepare them so that they can hear their own very words coming out of their mouth. So he says, he's asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Verse 17, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? See, Jesus was significant. It was talked about. It would be rare for somebody to be coming out of the Passover feast after Jerusalem to not be aware that this very significant prophetic teacher who was going to grince the grain had been killed. And nobody that followed him had, ex had expected that. That would be big news, right? Have you not even heard of it? And Jesus says, what things? Ruth Haley Barton says, Jesus plays dumb here, right? He's playing dumb. He's saying, tell, tell me, tell me. He wants to hear you say it, right? He wants to hear us say it. He wants to hear us sometimes spell out our misery to him, to pray out in agony to him, to, to ramble in confusion with him him what things they said about jesus of nazareth but it's significant here too that they call him jesus of nazareth the man not jesus christ the messiah 
He's beginning to unravel who they think, what they think of him, what things. Jesus of Nazareth, they reply, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. What they're not saying is we thought he was the Messiah come to save us. And what they do say is he was a prophet. He must have been a prophet. But he was powerful. But what he said was true. It says, and the chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But, and I, and I, and I want us to really anchor in on this for a second. Where in our life are we saying, but? Our buts are very revealing to God. Where are you saying, I'll do this, but, right? Because if you look down the page, there's three places where, where, they, where they are putting a caveat. They're saying, but we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, which is essentially them saying, but, it is the third day. We had hoped, but it's taking too long. We had hoped it would be the thing we wanted. We had hoped that he would be a literal redeemer of our nation. We had hoped that he would make us whole again, that we would have a place again, that he would be a ruling physical king in the line of David, that he would be a Messiah to come and buck the Romans to bring us back our nation and our culture and a home for the people of Israel. This is what we wanted. This was our Messiah. And so what we have to ask is, who is our Messiah? When we are down and out, when our eyes are downcast, when we're mulling something over the hundred times, where are we saying but? Because that is showing where our Messiah is. I wanted to be here, but what? I wanted my life to go this way, but what? What are the, you fill in the blank. What are the things in your life where you're saying, I'll, I'll go all in for you, God, but. I'll start praying and reading my Bible, but. I'll, I'll, I'll branch out and sacrifice my time for other people, but. What are we looking for? There's something human that we're looking for. And here we see that it's rooted in a disappointment. What is more, in, it has been three days. So it's, they're justifying how they feel. They're justifying it. They're saying, we had thought he was the Messiah, and now we're positive he's not. I mean, we're not really positive in our hearts. That's why we're so sad and mulling it over. But, but the facts are laid out, and the answer is there. It's been three days. He's, a, he's dead. We saw it, Right? It's, it's amazing to me that they even let a stranger in on this. The Spirit is working just for them to be with a stranger having this conversation. Because imagine the level of awkwardness. I was sitting, I was sitting at Horse Brass the other night and with Megan, and we had not had a great day. Actually, we'd had a terrible day, and it had just gotten worse as the day went on. And we're here to, to meet some people, and we're supposed to be, like, happy. We're supposed to be, like, talkative. And Heather walks in to sit down, and just immediately she was like, oh, never mind. Like, I ain't touching that. I ain't touching you. You are a hot mess, right? Like, that, that, to, to even have a stranger come to a place 
where they're tenacious enough, where they're wanting to know enough. Jesus is that stranger who is coming into your space. And Heather did stick around to her credit. But you're in the awkwardness, it was awkward. It was awkward to sit in there and go, I know you guys aren't okay. I don't even want to say let's talk about it, but I'm going to be here, right? Jesus comes into your space, and while you're being kicked while you're down, while your life is not going the way you want it, he is with you there as a fellow traveler. He might play dumb to ask you to get your narrative out. Right? We talked about the Samaritan woman's narrative last week. The stories we tell are important. We need, we need to sometimes hear ourselves say the things. And especially what's more is we need Jesus and our fellow Christians to hear us say our narratives to them, our life stories to them, and our but, our caveat, our thing, our justifications. We need all of that out there. That's why we're confessing with each other. That's why we're getting real because we need all that laid out. Because what's going to happen next is that as Jesus is walking with them in this awkward openness, asking for them to tell his story, he's going to become their teacher. Jesus is going to become their teacher. In verse 25, after they've gone through this whole story about how it didn't go any way that that they wanted, in fact, they're sure nothing is the same. It's not how we wanted it. Verse 24, they say, they were at the tomb, but they did not see Jesus. And Jesus comes in right there and he says, how foolish you are. He says, you're idiots. You are literally idiots. He rebukes them fairly harshly. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer suffer these things? and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus rebukes them very clearly with scripture, with a Christ-centered reading of scripture. Here's a teacher that is journeying alongside of them that understands Jesus' presence, his story, and is able to put their life up against it and read the two side by side. I had a professor that told me, basically all the prophets in the Old Testament did, is some of them were very prophetic and were telling like future things, but a lot of them were just taking the news of the day, the story of your life, and putting it up with the truth in the law and the truth in the prophets, and the truth of what so it is, and saying, here's where it doesn't match. So you need to change so that it matches. Right? Jesus is saying, don't you see, there's a fundamental problem that is causing literally all of your misery. All of it. You did not see that the Messiah had to suffer. So to give them a little credit, Pretty much all of the religious teachers of that time, all of the rabbis, would have been teaching of a coming Messiah that they were politically motivated to teach. They were teaching and hoping for and gearing their language and their framework and their culture to to usher in a Messiah that would save their people literally, like a Moses that would bring them out again, 
right? They wanted this Messiah that would be a king, that would be politically redemptive, and it was a better ad campaign for them to do that. Much better ad campaign, right? If you had an ad campaign about, oh yeah, the Messiah is actually going to die and the Romans are going to continue to reign over us and that's what we're all hoping for. Can you imagine trying to recruit with that campaign, right? So they did the human thing and they read the scriptures and they just left out some parts. They de-emphasized the suffering. And so what happens is they have a whole product, a whole culture of people under this teaching that don't see the Messiah for who he really is. Let's frame this a different way. A whole church who does not understand the Christian life the way it is. A whole culture of American Christianity who is looking for Christian culture to deliver a different thing than it does. That's what they're looking for. And so no wonder they don't see Jesus when he comes. No wonder. And so Jesus literally says, you're a bunch of idiots. Read the Bible, the whole thing. Study it, and then let me rebuke you with it, because it's going to be for your good. The Spirit is working all over the place, because if I had been rebuked like that, we would have parted ways on that road. Right? I would have said, yeah, hey, sorry. I'm, I'm suffering, I'm miserable, I don't need your rebuke right now. But the Spirit worked because they believed that Christ was the Messiah and they just couldn't add up how their life, how it would work. So as soon as Jesus gave them the hook, the thing that helped it make it all sense, as soon as he reminded them of the hope of living their life, the Spirit worked in them. And they begin a process of confessing their old Messiah and seeing their idols. Jesus has identified their idols and he is going to work with that. And they are going to confess, not by just in the moment proclaiming it. They're going to confess it by a change of heart. Because look at what happens next. As they approach the village, verse 28, to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. In their heart change, in seeing what they were missing, they invite the stranger. Right? Jesus is fellow traveler. Jesus is teacher. But to them, Jesus is a stranger. So they just have a fellow teacher, a fellow traveler, I'm sorry, a teacher. And now they are saying, I'm inviting you in because what you have to say for me is moving me. Later on in the text, they will say, if you go down to, it's a beautiful line, if you go down to verse 32, they ask each other, were or not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So that's what's happening here. Their hearts are burning. Have have you ever been in a place where your heart is burning, right? Something has to get off of it. You're propelled to do something. I had, I had a um, film teacher, and we would, we would, this was the class, I mean, it's just crazy if this was college. We, we would watch a movie, and then, like, we, the, the lights would come up, and he would sit there, and he was this old curmudgeonly guy, and he would just, like, have his pencil, and he would say, what moved your heart? 
and he would, he would just like move his hand up. So, like, what? It was like a French film. Like, come on, like, what? And the class was always like super quiet. And then like somebody would say something, or, like a moment in the film that moved them. And then pretty soon, like a conversation would start to happen, because if we're honest with ourselves, we're only working off the stuff that moves us. You can read scripture all day long. You can, you can read textbooks and study all day long. It doesn't make you want to be a doctor. It doesn't make you want to be an engineer, right? You've been moved to be the thing before you start doing anything. These disciples, downtrodden, needed to be moved. They needed to be reminded. They needed to have their heart quickened by something. Right? C.S. Lewis says, God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. We are the church. We are his blundering helpers. Right? Christ is manifesting himself through our blundering screw-ups. Because that is literally how he has ordained this to happen. That is literally how he wants this to unfold. He has put it into our hands. In his love, he has given us responsibility, right? To share, to move, to take what he's given us already, the scriptures, and to ask for it to quicken our hearts. And so what they do with their hearts quickened is they invite him in. They invite Jesus into their lives and they say, come be with us. Whatever was quickening us, we want more of that. We want to follow this thread. Our path ended, but you're giving us something and we want to follow it. Does Jesus move you like that? Does Jesus move you? When you read the scripture, does it move you like that French film I watched? Does it move you like a great book? Does it move you like eating really good Italian food? Does, does it move you like hearing live music? You know what I'm talking about. There's a way that those things work on you that is different. It's inexplicable. Does Jesus move you like that? Because once you've been moved like that, everything else pales. Right? Meg and I ate at this, I think I've already talked about this. We ate at this really good Italian place, clearly made an impression. I can't go eat at Olive Garden and have it be the same anymore. I'm sorry. I just can't. I'll be quiet. I won't judge it. If you invite me, I'll be, you'll notice I'll be very quiet. But I can't do it anymore because I was moved by something else. And everything else is paling in comparison by it. And it sounds, sounds so Christian and crazy for me to ask that of us. To ask God to move us reading the Bible. Right? Some of you might buck up just against that. Are you really telling me that? I am. Because Jesus said, this is the antidote to what is ailing you. Open the scriptures with me, a stranger on the road with you. And then invite me into your home. And there's two things happening here. They're inviting Jesus into their home, but they're also inviting the stranger into their home. Right? And we'll, get, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into this. But first, just meditate on the invitation. Jesus literally 
loves us so much and his grace is so powerful that if we wish for him to move on, he will continue walking down the road because he knows with our heart quickened, he's done what he needed to do. And we will either chase after him, we will walk down in days later, months later, years later, or in that moment, we will seize it like Cleopas and his friend do. And we will invite Jesus, the stranger, and we will welcome the stranger into our home. Now, if you read this and you see Jesus as the stranger, it, it really opens up this text. What does it mean to welcome the stranger and for it to be Jesus, right? They welcome the stranger to eat with them. And in the process of community, in some translations it calls this abiding, right? This is what abiding is, you guys. Inviting people into your home. Eating with them. Breaking bread. Praying with them. Hearing from them. Having long conversations on the road with them. We're called to abide with Jesus, but we're called to abide with the stranger. With the downtrodden. If we see Jesus as the stranger, then we can make some sense out of verses like this, Hebrews 13, 1 through 3. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. This is a literal request to love strangers because you are loving Jesus. Not just strangers, but anybody. So if you go to Matthew 25, here again, this is, this is a lot more intense. Verse 31 through 46. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he goes on, I won't read the whole thing, he goes on to condemn. This, this is a judgment day story. And he condemns those who did not treat the other like Jesus. Church, we are guilty as charged. As seeing our city as seen our kids, as seen our co-workers, as seen the people that we live with. Not, not, not even just a homeless person or pick any stereotype you want to put in there that your mind would go to. We are guilty of just doing this, not seeing Jesus in those people closest around us. And he's asking us to see Jesus and treat like the hospitality you would if you knew that this was Jesus. Can you imagine the surprise for these disciples as they took bread 
As Jesus took bread, he gave thanks and he broke it. And suddenly their eyes were opened, it says. Their eyes were opened. Something about the way he did it. And the veil was lifted. And the Spirit introduced Jesus to them in the fellow traveler, in the teacher. Suddenly it was Jesus who was with them. And no sooner did they see him than he was gone. There are moments when we are with the stranger. Where no sooner have they left than we realize what was happening to us. What was working in our heart. All of the time spent, all of the sacrifices, we seem to maybe get nowhere with somebody. Right? We, have, we have so many romances about helping a stranger. that All it takes is us finally making the time and we're going to bring this person off the street. Right? Just like that. Done. And they're going to stay off the street. Or we have all these romances about helping a coworker that's down and out. Right? bringing them meals, bringing them food, or even helping somebody who's just going through a hard time and thinking, now that I came in and helped them, now that I had that deep conversation with them, tomorrow they're going to be a lot better. And then what happens tomorrow? So many times they're spiraling again, right? It's hard again. And it's hard for us not to let that callous us. See, it's, it's crucial that the disciples saw that the hope of the Messiah was that he would save them so that they can begin to help anybody. Selfishness is an enemy to our charity. So many people see Jesus as a means to an end, right? Whether it's a means to their own end, to their own prosperity, right? We become a Christian because... We want the community. We become a Christian because we don't want to go to hell. We become a Christian because everybody in our family is, and it would be a lot of pressure to not be. Whatever the reasons are, the means that we have to the end that we want, I promise you, Jesus will work on destroying that end until he's the end. He will just work on taking it down. Because that is the most important thing, to flip that. Right? So that Jesus is not the means to your end. Jesus is the end to your means. Jesus is the thing that you work towards with everything you have. He gives you the hope. He flips the kingdom upside down. Sometimes we even use scripture and prayer as a drug, right? We go to it for a hit to be better and then we leave it when we've got what we needed. We go to the friend to confess when we're down, but then we leave them when we're good. We use each other. It's a sign that that Jesus is still a means to our end. Right? The, The flip script is a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work to remind and fight And have the hope and believe, no, the Messiah had to suffer for all of this to come to pass. Jesus is risen. He has saved me. He is traveling with me. I have him comforting me. Therefore, everything I have is going to spring out of that. We talked last week about the living water, right? About the spirit being in you and flowing out of you. 
charity will not work long term. It will not even work short term. It will not bring you what you're looking for if you're looking for anything other than to treat the stranger like Jesus. Because so many times in our charity, we're looking for some, something at the end of that week of camp, right? We're looking for some joy that's going to come from it. We will destroy all of the good things that the gospel teaches us that we ought do if we don't believe that the gospel is Jesus doing those things in us, healing us, giving us hope as the basis for all of it. Have you ever been like kind of humiliated, almost embarrassed by somebody else's faith? by somebody else's commitment, by somebody else's reading of scripture and seeing things, by somebody else's tenacity to build their life around what they believe in. And it almost, it, it puts you to shame. That's, that's what's happening to this, these disciples. We had, we had the most glorious thing happen this week. We had, uh, we checked our mail. And in our mailbox was a page-long handwritten letter. Not, not in an envelope, not stamped, right? It was from a neighbor two doors down the street who had just dropped this in when nobody was looking, right? And left it there unannounced. I've, I've talked to her time here and there. She knows a little bit about my story. This letter was her saying, I have prayed for you guys for two weeks and I'm going to pray for you every day. I've been praying for you. She gave a specific time since Tuesday, someday, right? And I will pray for you every day because of what you guys are doing and what I believe in. We don't even, we haven't even had these. I haven't, I haven't taken the time to have them over for dinner yet. Like, I was just like, I can't believe this. I deserve none of this. I was supposed to be the one that invited you from my block and am praying for you every day. I'm the pastor who's supposed to be taking care of my flock on my road, and you're pastoring me, right? It was like I felt a moment, just a glimmer of that. And then it was so overshadowed by the hope, by the love. It reminded me of what it means to do this, to welcome the stranger, right? To care enough for the people that are on your heart to invade their life. It's awkward to drop a handwritten letter in somebody's door, right? It's awkward. She, she probably even knows that I'm the one that's home around during the day and she's at home taking her kids out around the day. Like, I don't, like, it's just the whole thing's awkward to me. It's brave, it's courageous. And to me, it just struck me that this is what's asked of us, is these, these inclinations of the heart that bring us to action, that aren't stemming. She's not doing that because of anything she wants to get. I don't think. Like, she, she just believes in the power of God through prayer to work on people, and she believes in the commitment that it takes in the weekly, I, I mentioned that community is the most overpromised and undelivered aspect of the church. This was in a book I'm reading by Ruth Haley Barton called Life Together in Christ. 
That just struck me. The most promised and under-delivered. So many of us are disappointed by church because those around us in church did not act like we were Jesus that they were taking care of, right? Or they didn't act like they were an image of Jesus. They didn't have the bold, courageous sense to literally take care of the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, those in prison. But we also know, looking at each of those experiences, that there's a but in there. That, that in thinking of those things that burned us, we wanted something out of that experience. I, I left that because of this. I'm not going to forgive them because they did this. There's our but. There's what we need. There's our Messiah. There's what we're worshiping. There's what we really want. And Jesus is obliterating it. He is coming even though there is no requirement for him to do so. You see, the story is a great irony, you guys. That they are bemoaning the loss of their Savior as he is literally walking next to them. And he doesn't have to do it. It's an, it's an absolute act of love for him to bring confidence and relationship and care and rebuke and all of these things so that they would not be heading into the darkness of the night of their life, but that they would be weathering through to the dawn. That's what's happening on the road to Emmaus. A change in their heart, a person bringing Jesus into them to reframe their narrative so that the place they're in is a narrow part of the tunnel, sure, but it's not the end of everything. Because what they have is a hope on what's coming for them. As Paul says, the glory set before us. Let's pray.